Amen. Let's pray together a brief prayer from our uh, friends in the Anglican tradition. Father, this morning, what we know not, would you teach us? Father, this morning, what we have not, would you grant to us? And God, what we are not, by your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, would you make us for Christ's sake? Amen. Well, good morning. This morning we enter the last chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 16. Meet me there. And that means we still have three more sermons, but we're getting close. And in these verses, we have the movie credits. Any movie credit watchers in here? We like to watch the movie credits, especially with kids' movies, because at the end of kids' movies, there's also little hidden nuggets, right? At least my family, we're always looking for them. Will there be more? Most people, they'll walk out, don't they? Walk out, we're done with the movie. I don't care about the credits. Let's just keep moving. Same with lists of names in the Bible. Often just skim past them. There's not much there. I don't care about these people. But God wanted these names in his book. And so here we have them. And part of the reason is because Paul was a real person in real history with real relationships. So let's look, at number one, at Paul's patron. And then number two, at Paul's posse. Two Ps, which I think we, the last three sermons now, we're at like 10 or 12 Ps. So thinking about a, a Baptist book deal, the 27 Ps of Romans 12 to 16. I think we can make that happen. First, Paul's patron, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria. So Paul commends this woman, and these types of commendations are very popular in the first century, these letters of commendation so that they will know about this woman. Paul wants the church to know this woman is legit. He vouches for her. She is godly. She is a servant of the church at Sancria, which was on Corinth's east port. So get ready. She's coming. Welcome her. Now, if you got an NIV, especially new, and the NIV was updated about 10 years ago, and the new NIV says Phoebe was a deacon of the church. Almost every other translation says she was a servant of the church. So which is it? Is she a servant or is she a deacon? Now, one of the things we're going to see in this chapter is Paul elevates highly many, many women in terms of their work in the church, which is awesome. We want to do that. But because of that, this chapter is also distorted oftentimes by Christian feminists. And they distort what Paul says here and they go beyond what he actually says. And here we see it with Phoebe. So was Phoebe a faithful servant in her church? Or was Phoebe a faithful deacon in her church? So let's talk a little bit. We need to get Titi for just a moment to ask the question if the Bible teaches female deacons. Again, the NIV doesn't give the reader a choice. And I used to hold this view too. It says diakonos. That's, that's the word, right? Therefore, end of conversation. Phoebe is a deacon of the church of St. Crea. Well, upon further investigation, it's not quite that simple. This word is used all over the place as a noun. In fact, we've seen it a couple times in Romans. So Romans, flip back to chapter 13 show you just two of the places the noun is used in Romans. The same noun, diakonos. Look at Romans 13, 4. Remember the context of the government, governing authorities. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. Well, there's the word, diakonos, servant. Yet, no English translation translates diakonos as servant here in this verse. It just means, I mean, excuse me, as deacon in this verse, it just means servant. Or look across the page at Romans 15, verse 8. 
see the other use of the noun here in Romans. Romans 15, 8, I tell you that Christ became a diakonos, servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Well, there it is again. Yet no English translation translates it as deacon. So why would we translate it in Romans 16 as deacon? Well, this noun is used 29 times in the New Testament. And only Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3.8, and 1 Timothy 3.12 are referring to the office of deacon. 26 of the 29 uses are just talking about being a servant more generally. So this word doesn't actually prove anything about there being female deacons. So let's look at the other passages. There's only a few. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, and all it says is to the overseers, that's the leaders, the elders, the pastors, the overseers, and the deacons. That's all it says, so that doesn't really help us. The other passage is Acts chapter 6. And Acts chapter 6 is where the church is growing and they were coming across an issue with being able to provide food for widows. It was really like a benevolence issue. So the apostles were getting bogged down with meeting practical needs. And so God forms, most believe this is the chapter where forms the deacons to help meet practical needs, to free up the apostles to focus on the word and prayer. And in there, if you were going to have female deacons, that would have been the time. Here we have the beginning of the office. And instead, what we see is God telling the church to pick seven men filled with the Holy Spirit who will serve in this way. And there's a couple different words for man in the Bible. One is anthropos. It could mean mankind. could mean men or women. Mankind generally. That's not the word Acts uses. It's the word aner, which referring to men specifically. So very intentionally, with the beginning of the body of deacons, it's only men. That would have been the place to include women if God wanted female deacons. Then the other, only other passage we have to talk about is 1 Timothy 3. Turn over there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, 1 to 7, you have qualifications for overseers. An overseer is an elder, is a pastor. That's the leaders of the church. And then he switches to deacons in verse 8. And some people argue that in verse 11, he talks about female deacons. So let's read it. First Timothy 3, 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Here's the key verse, verse 11. Their wives, is what the ESV says, other translations say women. Women, likewise, or their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, is verse 11 talking about wives or women? It's the same word. There's one word that, that is both, wives or women, and it depends on the context. In context, is it a wife? In context, is it a woman? Well, we've got some context. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. There's the word. So in context, it's translated wife. Look at chapter 3, verse 12, which is the very next verse. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So I think verse 11 is talking about the wives of deacons, not female deacons. 
because of the context, the way the word is defined. And it was important for wives to be involved, especially when we're talking about helping widows, which is what 1 Timothy 5 is all about. But additionally, that's not all. Additionally, notice the flow here. If we're talking about 1 Timothy 3.8, male deacons, verse 9, male deacons, verse 10, male deacons, verse 11, the argument is change the subjects to female deacons. And then there's only four qualifications listed. You would think there would be more qualifications listed if it's a new office. Then he flips back to verse 12 to male deacons and lays it out. It doesn't fit the context of the word. It doesn't fit the context of the flow of what he's saying. And it only mentions four qualifications. One other reason, and that's the larger context. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through the end of chapter 3 is about leadership in the church, how God wants his household to be ordered. So 1 Timothy 2, 12 is important. Now let me just warn you, this is not me saying, this is God's word. This verse is the most hated verse in today's world, I think, even by Christians. But notice what Paul says, God through Paul, Paul through the Holy Spirit about how he wants his church ordered. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The church is to be led by elders and deacons. Now, deacons are servants, but they are part of the leadership of the church. They're set aside with the title. They're set aside with qualifications. And so 1 Timothy 2.12 has a bearing on how we structure the church. And it's God's design that women not have authority over men. So wrapping this up, I don't think Phoebe was a deacon, but she was a faithful servant. Let's not let the question of deacons sidetrack us from this exemplary woman. She was a servant in the church. And ladies, there's so many ways you can serve the church. Notice what this awesome lady, this godly woman did. Look at verse 2. Let's read one, 1 and 2 again together. Romans 16, 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This woman was awesome. This woman is worthy, he says, so welcome her in a worthy way. Roll out the red carpet. Honor her. And he says, because she's been a patron, a benefactor, not only to me, but to many others as well. Phoebe was a woman of means, a woman of wealth, maybe a widow who inherited a hefty estate. And notice how she uses her wealth for the expansion of the kingdom. She was a benefactor for the cause of Christ. She provided resources and residence, provision and protection. The church needs wealthy people that will fund ministry and use their resources for the sake of the building up of the church. And Phoebe is a shining example of that. She was Paul's patron. Now we turn to Paul's posse. Verses 3 to 16. And here we have more personal greetings in this one chapter than all of Paul's other letters combines. And remember, Paul hadn't been here, but he knew a lot of people. The Roman roads and he was able to travel and he wants to give them a shout out. Say hi. Probably five different house churches that he's writing to. As we're going to see the house of Priscilla and Aquila, Aristobulus, Narcissus, Asyncritus, and Philogus. So first Priscilla and Aquila. Look at verse 3. 
Greet Prissa, short for Priscilla. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. They were co-workers. They labored for the promotion of the gospel and the building up of the church alongside Paul. They were a power couple. They were strategic partners in the mission of God. Probably tent makers, but fundamentally, if you asked them, hey, what are you about? They would say, making disciples, advancing the cause of Christ. And boy, does the church need these type of people, people that are funded by factories and the school districts and Dell and whatever else. But they're, what they're about is seeing the cause of Christ move forward in the hearts of men and women, co-workers. Paul had met them probably when they had to leave Rome. He met them in Corinth and they loved Paul. They cared for him. It says they even risked their own lives for him. We don't know what that's talking about. Probably with one of the riots and Paul getting kicked out. And he says, he expresses thanks. But not only Paul, all the Gentile churches as well. Look at verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. So greet the Priscilla and Aquila, greet the church that's in their home, which again, they had a big enough home to host the church, probably an affluent couple, and they use their wealth to serve the church and expand the gospel. Greet the church, greet Epinatus, the first convert to Christ in Asia. We don't like that word anymore in American culture though, do we? Convert. You're just trying to convert me, but conversion Convert really is a glorious word, isn't it? When we speak of our conversion, we speak of being converted from Adam to Christ. From darkness to light. From hostility to peace. From Satan to the Lord. From guilt to forgiveness, from debt to freedom, from living for ourselves to living for the Lord. We convert. We move from one realm. I should say the Lord moves us from one realm to another. And I wonder this morning, have you been converted? Have you trusted in Christ and turned from your sin? You can do that today. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Turn from your sin. Be converted. And you know what the next step is. If you've been converted, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've confessed his name, the very next step, the first step of obedience is to be baptized publicly. To go before the church and say, I'm in with the Lord. I'm ready. I want you to know I've trusted in King Jesus. If you have any questions about conversion or baptism, there's nothing we enjoy talking about more. Look at verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Mary, of course, another Jewish name. And what does he say about old Mary? Well, she worked hard on behalf of the church. There's that missional ambition that we talked about a few weeks ago. It's those who work hard for the church that impact the most people that leave a legacy. They provide the grit. God provides the grace. Just like Paul, I worked harder than them all, though it wasn't I. It was the grace of God that is with me. So praise God for Mary whoever she was, and her sanctified sweat to build up the church. Look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles 
and they were in Christ before me. Andronicus and Junia, Paul's kinsmen, fellow prisoners, they had served time together for the sake of Jesus. Andronicus is a dude, but we're not sure about Junia because of the form of the noun. It could be a man, it could be Junius, or it could be Junia, a female. And again, there's tons of debate about this. I actually think Junia was a female, and so we have another power couple here. But the debate comes because of the next phrase. The ESV says they were outstanding among the apostles. But maybe your translation says they were, they were, out, they were notable, excuse me, ESV says well-known to the apostles. Maybe your translation says well-known among the apostles. So the question is, were they known by the apostles or were they apostles? And again, it's hard to know. The grammar is pretty hard to decipher. But I think Andronicus and Junia were this couple that were actually outstanding among the apostles, meaning they were apostles. And of course, this is where Christian feminists will take this and distort the chapter and say, see, a woman was an apostle and therefore a woman can pastor a church. Well, not quite, because the word apostle can be used in a whole lot of different ways. We're not talking about big A apostles, the 12 that we know that knew their Lord Jesus, but little A apostles. In other words, what we would call church planters, missionaries, evangelists. The Bible uses it that way a lot. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas He wasn't one of the big A apostles, but he was sent out. He was a church planter. In chapter 14, he's called an apostle. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 23. As for Titus, he's my partner, fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are, here's the word, apostles. ESV says messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Or maybe Epaphroditus, again, not a big A apostle, but he was a sent one. That's all the word means. Apostle means sent out. Philippians 2 says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your apostle, sent one, messenger, and minister to my need. So I think Andronicus and Junia were outstanding lowercase a apostles, outstanding missionaries, outstanding apostles, evangelists, church planners. And there were other apostles. There were tons of people sent out from the church to do this sort of work. What makes them outstanding? What makes them noteworthy, notable? Because they could have listed a lot. He chose these two. Why? Well, it doesn't tell us. We know a little bit about this couple just from Acts, but even there, it doesn't tell us a lot. I think we can look, though, to three characteristics that set Christian workers apart. One would be their character. You would hope all Christian Ministers, missionaries, evangelists have character. Sadly, it's not always the case. But these, you just knew about their character. You knew their hearts. There was no doubt about it, what they were in for. They were in for the glory of the Lord. They loved him. They wanted to honor him in all of life. They knew his word. They sought to honor him in everything. Character. And then related to that, what makes ministers outstanding? What makes sent ones? And by the way, we're all sent, every one of us. John 20, 21, Jesus says, the Father sent me, I send you. What makes some sent ones stand out? Their character and their selflessness. In other words, they gave of self for the good of the church. They saw to put their, their time and their gifts and their resources toward the building up of the body of Christ. And then third, I think what would set them apart is this missional ambition we see in Romans 15 and 16. In other words, their work ethic. They worked hard. And it set them apart. Proverbs 12. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. They were diligent in their work. Proverbs 22. Do you see a man skillful in his work? 
He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So the harder the work, the broader the influence for the sake of the kingdom. And that's what we see here with these two. They went after it for the sake of the Lord. You know, because God tends to use those types of people. God doesn't tend to use people who don't love him. People who are two-faced. People who are not trying to please the Lord. People who lack character. He tends not to bless their efforts. And he tends not to bless the work of selfish people. People who are just in it for their, for their own agenda. And God doesn't tend to use lazy people either. Andronicus and Junia are none of those things. They were outstanding among the apostles. And then Paul mentions all kinds of others. We've got lots of good baby names here. Look at verse 8. The key here is not necessarily know how to pronounce these names. Just act like you do. Just say them with confidence. Look at verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys, greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, say hi to your mom for me, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermas, and the brother who's, brothers who are with me. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Some of those names sound like medical conditions. And what about Narcissus? <laughs> I want to hear his testimony. If you ever have twins, Tryphena and Tryphosa, can't beat those. He mentions the family of Aristobulus. And we know from history there was a building in Corinth with his name on it. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. It says, greet Rufus. And from the Gospel of Mark, we know that Rufus was the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. Wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? We don't know what Jesus said to Simon of Cyrene. He may not have said anything, but Simon was a firsthand witness. He saw the Son of God at his lowest going to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And he was compelled by it and he was saved. Simon. Simon goes home and he tells his wife and he tells Rufus about the Lord. And Rufus comes to faith. And Rufus is a minister now who gets named in the book of Romans. Good old Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Rufus, tell him hi. Make sure and tell his mama I said hi too. Who was like a mother to Paul. Isn't that awesome? We don't even know this woman's name. Yet, she loved Paul. She cared for Paul. She took him under his wings. I wonder who can you be a spiritual mom to? Someone you can bring alongside, you can speak the truth to, you can serve, you can seek to foster faith. One of the best ways at Southside you can do that here in the next I don't know, eight, ten weeks, is adopt a college student. If you've never participated in the ministry we have, it's an awesome way to be a spiritual mom to an incoming college freshman. We'll let you know how that shakes out when school gets back. Don't even know her name. And that's the case with most of these people. Most of these folks are basically anonymous, at least to us. For most of them, this is their only mention. We don't know them, but the Lord does. And the church at Rome did. 
And the Lord used them in a big way. People just like you. You may think, oh, I could never make this list. I couldn't be used by God. Friends, all these people are very ordinary, normal people just like us. Sinners, strugglers, sufferers. No names, but they loved the Lord and they went to work on his behalf and God was pleased to use them. They weren't professionals. They weren't pastors. Most of them weren't even kinds of missionaries. They were just ordinary people committing to honoring God in everything they did and seeking to build up the church. I love the line about ministry in this book called Total Church. Most ministry, most ministry is ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. That's the call, friends. And God loves to use his power through weakness. In our weakness, he is strong. And the enemy wants you to think, well, your weakness keeps you from making an eternal difference. Don't believe that lie. It's cliche, but it is true that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the call. Meaning just take a step out and God will use you. Through your obedience, you will be used. Because again, God likes to use the most lowly of saints. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4, we're called jars of clay, you know, because of the music. And we, it's, it's, we understand that. We probably don't realize what he means there. Jars of clay was the cheapest way you could carry anything. It was the cheapest, most ordinary way to carry anything. It would be like a Walmart plastic bag. That's what you are. Plastic sack. But God delights to put the treasure of the gospel in us plastic sacks so that he can show the powers from him. That's what the passage says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Ordinary people with a love for the Lord and a love for one another. Look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. A holy kiss. All the single guys perked up, but it says holy, gentlemen. And apparently greeting with a kiss was not just a, a European thing, not just a South American thing, but was a very common form of greeting in ancient Judaism. But now we, uh, we greet in other ways. But here's the point. Our greeting, our, our welcome of one another, it ought to have affection. It ought to show love for one another. Now, we're not supposed to do it during this season, but the desire should be there. And I just want to say that I'm encouraged by Southside's love for one another. Always have been. It's always been one of the things that has stuck out from the very first time we were here back in 2005 is your love for one another. And oftentimes, especially how that shows itself physically. Now, some of you dudes, I confess, make me uncomfortable with your chest to chest hugs. I like my arm there and I like it just a brief pause. I don't like that just stop. That makes me a little uncomfortable, but I'm glad to see it. I'm encouraged by your love for one another. We ought to. We ought to be excited to see one another, like your dog when you come home after a long day, just eager. Greet one another. Show some affection. So Paul had a posse. He mentions 26 people. I think when we think of Paul, we don't think of him this way, do we? You think about the Apostle Paul, what typically comes to your mind? Probably some brave, lone ranger Christian out there getting it done. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul always had a crew with him, a team, co-laboring, co-suffering, a family of faith on mission together, one body with many parts, each member playing a part, every member ministry. This is what a healthy church is. It's not when people come here for an hour to spectate on a Sunday. 
It's when everybody's doing their part. Ephesians 4 teaches so clearly, every one of you has been given grace. Every one of you has been given a gift. And what are you to do with that gift? To build up the church. Edify the church. All of us speaking the truth to one another that we all may reach a maturity. Each part playing its role. And notice also we see the glimpse just of the diversity of the first century community of Christ. Different types of people from different types of backgrounds, all united around ministry to Christ's church. Christ tore down all kinds of walls that were present in the first century. Listen to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus has provided access for any and for all. And they all come together united around the common confession that Jesus is Lord. This was revolutionary. Turn on the news. It's still revolutionary, isn't it? Christ alone can tear down these barriers. It was revolutionary in the first century. There was this Jewish prayer that was prayed almost every day for a number of Jewish men at the time of this writing. And here's how the prayer went. Blessed be God that he hath not made me a woman, that he hath not made me a slave, that he hath not made me a Gentile. Well, there it is, isn't it? Gender, class, ethnicity. Christ unites them all. Ethnicity. Here in this list, we have as many Gentiles as we have Jews. Class. Well, you got people so wealthy, their names are on buildings in Corinth, and you've got slaves. A number of these are very common slave names. United together. And you've got gender. People today tend to think that Christianity is regressive when it comes to gender because we're in such a feminist culture and a feminist city. But in the first century, the church was progressive when it comes to empowering and elevated, elevating women. Paul greets 26 people in this chapter. Nine of them are women. Paul tends to get a bad rap from feminists. Call him chauvinist, call him misogynistic, because he teaches very clearly that a woman cannot hold the office of pastor or deacon. So people writing him off, write him off. People write us, honestly. We're, we're a complementarian church. What that means is we believe that men and women are created equal, absolute equal dignity and value in the eyes of God. But Scripture very clearly teaches that there's different roles that God calls men and women to. Versus the other view, which is called egalitarianism, and the idea there is that God created all men equal, men and, men and women equal, same thing we believe, but they believe that there can be no distinction of role. And so they deny male headship in the church, and they deny male headship in the home, and so we're known for that at Southside. I actually think that's a good thing, but here a few months ago, I was preaching at one of our universities, and again, we're known for this. And that sermon had nothing to do with gender, but one of the profs comes up and says, wants to be combative. Do you believe in women in ministry? And she thought, me had, thought she had me cornered. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she didn't, it's not what she expected. So, what, well, no, you don't. I said, oh, you bet I do. All kinds of ministry. Well, can they be a pastor? Well, no, the Bible clearly teaches that that's not the case. Oh, well, then you don't believe in women in ministry. That's just not the case, right? Right here from what we see in Romans chapter 16, nine women doing all kinds of things. There is all kinds of vital, crucial ministry that women are called to and need to be doing. Just not the offices of pastor, elder, overseer, deacon. Paul celebrates that reality. Nine of them 
Nine female gospel co-workers alongside 17 male gospel co-workers who got to work. And friends, this is a fitting conclusion to what we're seeing in Romans. If this theology is true, we have work to do. If this good news, this gospel brings access to all Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, we need to be busy. This truth that all of us sinners, our greatest problem is that we deserve judgment. Yet in grace, God has sent his son to live perfectly, to die in our place so that if we will trust in him, we will have our sins forgiven. This gospel, if it is true, should light us up with missional ambition. Let me close. Let me, let me ask you, if you were a member of the church at Rome, would your name be listed? If not, why not? You know, in Abilene, Texas, there's a lot of nominal Christianity. In name only Christianity. Lots of people that church is a hobby. It's something they do for an hour on Sundays. One of the silver linings of all the stuff we see going on in our culture is that nominal Christianity will be slowly faded out and the church will be strengthened. Even though it'll be smaller, it'll be strengthened. Friends, let's look at these names that Paul commands and let's resolve to repent of nominal Christianity, to resolve to be done with the half-heartedness, to resolve to, to get off the fence. Life is short. I feel like we, we, we see that all the more today. Life is short. It's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Life is short. Use your life well. Don't live for yourself. Live for the Lord. Live for his church. Let's resolve to repent of the half-hearted Christianity and live sold out for him. Like Phoebe and like Mary and Ampelotus and Andronicus and Junia and Olympus and countless more ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and its clarity. And I do pray that we would be challenged by these ordinary people that were so committed to you that they were known as fundamentally servants of Christ. May we be challenged and may we rid ourselves of the, the wobbling and the, the in and out and one foot in, one foot out. Lord, may we resolve to be all in for you. Give us the grace to be sold out, Lord. This gospel is true and therefore it should commend itself for us to reply and demand even all of us. Love so amazing, so divine that demands our life our soul, our all. Lord, we lay it down and we ask you to use us. We need help and we want help. We know this is the life worth living, so we ask you to help us. Live for you, sold out, uncompromised. In Christ's name, amen.